This is The Coffee Break, a podcast on the state of the networking business where we discuss vendors, moves, news, analysis on products and their positioning in the market, and generally take a good hard look at the business of networking in the time it takes to have a coffee break. Well, we think. I'm Greg Farrow. You all can find me on the internet as Ethereal Mind on Twitter and at my blog at etherealmind.com. And joining me today, of course, is Andrew. How are you today, Andrew? Good, Greg. How are you doing? I'm still alive. I'm a little bit worn from dealing with Windows Azure. That may be a subject for another podcast. Maybe so, but right now I could uh, give it a good pounding with a baseball bat. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Greg, I want to introduce our guest, Stephen Hill. Uh, he is Senior Analyst of Data Center Solutions at Current Analysis. Steve, how are you doing? Good morning, gentlemen. Well, tell us what you do, Steve. I Basically, I cover, uh, we're extending our data center coverage at Current Analysis, and I've been looking at uh, converged infrastructure systems this year, which is uh, an, an interesting uh, new type of product that you're seeing in terms of combined networking, compute, and storage in one modular type of design. The next thing I've been covering and we'll be looking at later on this year is uh, private cloud enablement. Um, with all the talk about going to hybrid cloud, et cetera, um, there's still a lot of confusion around the private cloud market. Hybrid is great, um, but there's a lot of companies that are still concerned about diving too deeply into the public cloud for whatever reason. Mm. Yeah, public cloud is, uh, I've actually, you know, talking of Windows Azure this week, I've actually been configuring uh, systems in um, AWS, Amazon's AWS on EC2 and mm -hmm. in Windows Azure, and I've also been doing a bit of a trial over at GCE just to compare the three. Let's just say that um, it's not ready for some of the things uh, that people want to do. <laughs> oh, and honestly, they make it sound like it is. They make it sound like you could just step right out, drop your coin in the slot, and everything will work just beautifully. That's right. It just don't you worry about that. Everything we find <laughs> in the morning, it just you bring your stuff over here. I brush it up. I put a little bit of paint on the job. She look fine, buddy. She look fine. Make it lovely. Make it lovely. <laughs> well, that might be the a segue to uh, a story that uh, Steve brought to us from the register about uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, turning infrastructure as a service into a tradable commodity. Yikes. <laughs> it's a frightening concept <laughs> when you think about it. I mean, the whole premise of commodity, I mean, is realistically basic commodities. We're talking about pork bellies and oats and all those other kinds of things that are that are commodities, where when you're looking at cloud computing resources, I don't see that you can really do an apples-to-apples apples comparison of, of the different types of uh, cloud products that are out there. And you're, to your point, just you just made that it's really not as easy as they make it think that you just, oh, well, we'll just pour a little bit from this bottle and a little bit from that bottle, and you've got a perfect cocktail. It doesn't work that way. It also implies a liquid market too, right, so that the assets right. are fungible. So an, an instance or, a, you know, if you're using a SQL data, let me, let's, let's not talk about ES. Let's talk about, you know, if you're using Amazon's RDS as a data store, is that as fungible as the Microsoft Azure data store? Or, in fact, Google, you know, GCE's app, uh, app engine. They're, they're, not, they're not fungible for a start. Um, they're not the same. You don't write code the same. You're not using the same languages. They're not fungible. No. And honestly, it just looks like a way, another way of capitalizing off of a new market, which is what you see happen all too often. I mean, it's basically these are financial people saying, okay, look, here's a new thing that we can try and make money on. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, it seems like it's the financial community trying to set itself up as a middleman between uh, the customers and the 
private cloud brokers, which, uh, you know, if I'm trying to buy private cloud services, I don't know why I would want to have a middleman in there. Yeah, exactly. It's just sapping money out of the process, which is, again, it seems to be the American way, but I don't know if it's, <laughs> if it's exactly the right way or not. I mean, I presume what they're selling essentially are, are contracts, so I suppose there might be some logic like if I was buying airplane fuel, you know, I want to lock in a specific rate because I'm betting that airplane fuel prices are going to go up. But, you know, right now private cloud – I mean, sorry, public cloud costs seem to be on a downward trend, so I'm not sure about the value of locking yourself into a, a price contract. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the point. If you look at the price wars that are going on right now, it's only going to get worse and worse, really. So, I, like I say, I just don't see the value in it other than an opportunity for the financial industry to, to take their bite of, uh, of this new technology. Well, there are forward markets for all sorts of weird things, like, you know, oranges and you know, obscure things that you don't even know about that happen in the background. I used to do work in merchant banking for a while, and I remember um, getting being told that there's different trading contracts in the most obscure things that I can't recall right now. And I, you know, why not set one up? And if it turns into something, well, you know, you can own that whole. It's, you can be the first person in that trading product, you know, in that commodity. If it, it's not a commodity, but if it is. Um, you're the one who owns that market. So now Chicago becomes the center of cloud commodity trading, and that's all they want. And they've right. got the press, right? They've got all the free marketing. That's a win, isn't it? Well, for them, but not for everyone else. Again, this is just a way of tapping money out of the industry. To me, it sounds a lot more like going to Las Vegas and betting on how long the national anthem is going to take to sing at, at the Super Bowl. <laughs> but Las Vegas has done very well for itself yeah. with that yeah, business model. Exactly right. <laughs> but not so much for the person who bet uh, on 30 seconds of the national anthem. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of betting and gambling at startups, uh, Arista this week is getting closer to its IPO. I don't know exactly when it gets it away, but one of its co-founders has now claimed that its company – his company actually owns the SysDB, which is the database that is at the core of Arista's EOS operating system, uh, in an article at Network World. And um, it looks like Arista may have some pain to go through before it gets, what is it, what do they say, it gets out of the traps or gets to ring the bell or something? Yeah, the ring of the bell, I believe. Yeah, this is a this is a delicious story of infighting between all of the top people at, at Arista, because Arista is an interesting company if you look at it. I mean, undoubtedly you've been following it for quite a while, gentlemen, and and they've they've come up with some very very impressive, high performance, somewhat niche product. Uh, they uh, they've really had a really great business in uh, financial markets, like you say, where there's high transactional trading and stuff like that. But uh, they just they haven't seemed to be able to penetrate the enterprise market quite as much. And now that they're looking at doing this IPO, there's this breakup amongst the top the top players of that the company. And it's interesting to see how this is going to show up in terms of the valuation of the IPO when it comes around. It, it seems like a case of um, some folks looking to, to get some money out of it, um, which shouldn't be a surprise. That's why people have IPOs, to get some money. Mm -hmm. um, I, I Overall, I'm thinking – I was trying to think about, you know, is, is this a good time for Arista to be IPOing? Um, according to the article, that their revenue seemed to be pretty good. They're selling. But um, it seems like the overall trend um, is kind of moving away from expensive, high-performance hardware. Mm-hmm. 
maybe it's the only time they'll get to realise the full value of the business. If they go now, they get to catch the end of the legacy bit about the chassis being important. And, um, you know, as we've talked about on the show, we believe generally that the trend to commoditised, industrialised networking at, you know, the converging around higher speeds but lower port densities signals a generalised downturn. I was told last week by a financial advisor that Cisco's walking around Wall Street telling people that they're going to have a slowdown for the next two or three quarters as the industry recalibrates. Mm. So, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But this kind of, I mean, flies in the face of the idea that Andy Bechtelsheim always wanted to keep the company. It was his idea that this is this is a dream he had in his head, and I believe he was previously from Cisco, but... Um, Andy wanted to build this company and run this company, and now they're IPOing it, which is almost a sure sign that there's eventually could be changes at the top. Yeah, I wonder if the strategy is to Steve. You said you called them a niche company, and you know, I suppose there's nothing necessarily wrong with being a niche company. You know, I'm thinking of like if Cisco and, and Dell and HP want to be the, the Toyota and the Ford of networking, maybe Arista wants to be the Mercedes-Benz or the BMW. Sure. Um, but, you know, I just worry about what happens when you bring a company like that into the public market, then suddenly there's pressure for growth, uh, and that can lead to some pretty bad short-term thinking. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, the street starts making decisions for you, and that's that's just an unfortunate state of affairs. I've been through that myself in my career, companies that have gone from uh, private to public, and it, it forces a change. It forces a completely different philosophy on you that you just don't have control over anymore. Right. Mm, I, I, you know, I think Arista's get, trying to get some cash in fluxion. I think also that uh, Arista needs to get bigger before it can out-compete Cisco. Ultimately... Um, so, for example, in the routing and switching division, Cisco is doing, what, $4 billion a quarter in revenue? And Arista is turning over a couple of hundred million a quarter. Does it need right. to be scaling up? Like, does it need to get a lot bigger to be able to compete at commodity, to be, um, to manufacture? Like, two years ago, if you could make, you know, a number of switches, you know, say 10,000 switches in a year, you were a good size, you were one of the... But, you know, Extreme and uh, bought somebody recently, the old Cabletron product. I keep forgetting what it's called. Oh, yeah, I, I know what you mean, too. Mm. That Boy, that name sure brings you back, Cabletron, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the Extreme bought another company to get a bit bigger. Juniper's Enterosis. Enterosis, that's right. So Extreme and Enterosis have gotten together. They've got some good synergies there. Um, Brocade has, you know, is beefing up its Ethernet portfolio and expanding its size. Juniper has been beefing up its enterprise division. Does Arista need to get bigger to be able to compete with them, perhaps? I guess, but if your whole strategy is based around, you know, being a specialized device, then you can't play the commodity, you can't play the broad base customer market game because that's not what you're building, and so... If they have to grow, I, I, I mean, I suppose an infusion of cash could help in some ways, but it just doesn't seem like a smart move to me. Yeah. Unfortunately, that cash comes with a lot of strings that people just don't <laughs> count on. Uh, I was well, – well, one of the other things too is that a lot of their customers are in the financial industry. And while they're privately held, they're not using the financial industry, and maybe there's a little bit of <laughs> – 
we're buying your product. Come give us a little taste. Yeah, yeah, give you us know, a little taste of that Arista. That's right. And maybe there's some. <laughs> I don't know. It's a little hard to tell. Well, maybe there's just pressure from the staff. I mean, if you've been hanging around Arista for five years hoping for a payday, this may, you know, how else do you get a payday? I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. Maybe this, you know, the natives are restless and getting ready for the door. I mean, I remember yeah, Zyland, what it was, well, Zyland eight or nine years ago, and people would basically said that they signed up for two and a half years, and at two and a half years they were exiting out the door, even though it was Zyland because they just burned themselves out. So maybe there's a bit of that going on in some of the early starters. Mm. That's interesting perspective. I didn't consider that. Mm. You know, if you've been hanging around for a few years, you might be sitting there saying, you know. I'm done. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to go and sit on the wall over here. I'm not quitting, but I ain't going to do so much. There's not much in it for me now until, you, until I can cash out. Maybe there's that. I don't know. Totally possible. All right. Uh, well, we might as well have another go at the net neutrality argument. I thought we'd talk this one to death in the last couple of shows, Andrew, but apparently Americans think that net neutrality is a big deal. Or ARS Technica this week talking mm. about that the FCC has suddenly decided that net neutrality is for suckers and that all customers are suckers and therefore everybody should pay to have the traffic. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's part of me that that kind of sees a concern in that, but I mean, ultimately, some of this has been going on the whole time, and 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 simply paying to get additional access to the big pipes doesn't necessarily mean that it's blocking other types of content from getting through. You know, it, we're we're talking about a, a you know a performance and a speed issue more than we are talking about an accessibility issue. Yeah, I kind of feel like I, I I see the point of that, but I also feel like w- what's happening is we're we're seeing the foundations of a you know being built for a a two tier internet delivery system where in one tier is best effort, good luck, and the other tier is pay up. Mm. I think it's uh, I think there's a whole lot of room for distortion here. Ultimately, the telecom market in America is heavily regulated. It's not a good capitalist market, despite what everybody pretends. There's right. really only a couple of players. And um, while you own the cable, one company or another owns the cable in the mm. ground, it's an effective monopoly. Now, in all the other non-capitalist countries in the world, like Britain <laughs> and Australia, <laughs> uh, what they did was they moved the ownership of the cable that was in the ground into a separate company that is not for profit. It's to be done. It, they just own the cable, they run the cable, maybe a little inefficiently, I'll grant you, but no less inefficiently than AT&T or Verizon if my Twitter stream is anything to judge by, judging <laughs> from the amount of whining going on. Um, and uh, then they put a whole bunch of people over the top and said, everybody gets equal access to the cable, uh, and but you've got to build services on top of that. And Now, that, of course, is just not practical in America because... Uh, I doubt the political will exists to create that sort of solution, but that's where the problem is. Everybody pays equal money to access the copper, which then connects you to the network, and then you don't need to pay for privilege over the top because that's your service. Your service is about providing bandwidth. You want to attract customers to buy your bandwidth. So charging people at the other end means you're actually chasing customers away. The only reason it can happen in the U.S. is because they're a monopoly in a good communist dictatorship. Sorry, uh, in the... (laughs) American telecommunications environment. <laughs> right. Well, I, 
Go ahead, Steve. No, I was just going to say that this has been an interesting discussion in the past, purely because when you're looking at comparing this to the, say, the traditional phone market, realistically, again, you are paying for access and not so much for bandwidth because really there were no bandwidth issues when you're talking about telephone. For the most part, people paid to get access to the phone system, and either you're using it or you're not, and it was an issue of how much you were using it, and if you were using it for long distance, you're paying more. Now, basically, that that's all folded down into one nice flat market where where most uh, most systems provide free long distance calling to practically anywhere in your country where it used to be calling even a hundred miles away might cost you extra. That being said, when you're looking at things like the internet, realistically, it's an unmetered environment. So if you have users that are streaming Netflix and using up a substantially greater amount of bandwidth than the person next door who's paying the exact same amount, doesn't it follow that there really should be some sort of way of, of making people pay for what they actually use? I mean, well, they, they are because when I signed up for a contract with my provider, I, you know, I'm paying for X megabits per second, and so if I want to use that, that's what I get because that's what right. I'm paying for. Yeah, mm-hmm. you pay for that. Well, I think my other concern is that, yeah, but I think really, my other concern is that when you look at the size of companies like Comcast, the size it's getting to be. Oh yeah. If it decides that it wants to go out and buy Amazon or Amazon buys Comcast or they enter into a partnership, now you've got a provider of content along with the cable provider you know that's you know they've got some clear conflicts of interest there where they can say now Amazon Prime streaming gets priority over you know Netflix or whatever my other competitor is i th- i think that kind of thing that potential worries me mm. it, when i'm in the us if i use my english mobile phone then the company in the us charges the company in the uk $5 a minute to make a telephone call. The company in the UK charges me $10 a minute. It doesn't cost any more to make a telephone call than if I was local or whether I was remote. It's just that they agree to charge each other $5 a minute, and the only sucker in this thing is me, right? <laughs> because so if you go and say, right, I'm going to charge the person coming in at this end, and I'm going to charge the person at this end on that end, the only person that loses is the customer or the user right. or the consumer. And in a monopoly market, there's no competition, right? You buy your 20 megs from Comcast or Verizon or AT&T, whoever it is. You've already paid for that. Yeah. What else do you want? You know, do you really need to charge for consumption? Or do the carriers just need to man up and start doing upgrades on their network on a rolling basis instead of doing it once every 10 years like they do now? <laughs> yeah, what, and that is that, that last mile is the big challenge. No, it's not. It's it the is business for, it issue. Is the United States. It's not. It's not so much in the rest of the world where they've been intelligent enough to to build their. Talks. their it's the same problem in in Brazil as it is in Australia as it is in China. Distance is the tyranny of distance. Doesn't matter. Once, but once you've got the fiber optic cable in the ground or the backhaul or whatever you want to call it, if you make it too expensive, then putting the backhaul in is not worth doing, because it's so expensive you can't get enough customers in. It's got to be ubiquitous. And it's got to be uniform. But ultimately what you're saying here is that backhaul across the ocean is the same cost as backhaul through the United States or through your internal com- uh, country. And I don't believe that's the case. So when you go to but, Walmart in the country, do they, are they cheaper or more expensive than in the city? No, that's, it's, not a, it's not a reasonable apples-to-apples comparison. Sure it is. Well, it takes time. No, You've got to I mean, transport everything out to the countryside. It must be more expensive for a supermarket in the countryside. 
but not on the same scale as it is to try and squeeze all this through either a satellite or through a, uh, an interocean link. Arguably. You don't have to put so much of it, though, right? In the countryside, you only need less bandwidth, so you can only run one fibre instead of 100. There's answers to all of these things. I just I don't agree with it. I, I, it's not that net neutrality, it's the impact of net neutrality. Companies like YouTube and Google and Facebook can afford to buy access. You know, the people who are rich and wealthy and incumbent, and it cements their position and prevents challenges in startups, and ultimately that sucks innovation. Right. That's the challenge. Everything else, I could get away. You know, I'm not too fussed mm -hmm. about equal rights for everybody or, you know, whatever. But it's it's the la it's the fact that it'll benefit one company at the price of me as the customer that ultimately I get mm -hmm. peeved about. Yep, I'm with you. All right. Next topic is Aereo. Apparently, people in America watch TV. Who knew? <laughs> 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 because. Uh, we basically have free-to-air TV. So in the countries I've lived in, again, this is one of these... I know I'm going to go on a little bit here, but Aereo's fate is an American thing. And since 40% of our audience is outside of America, it's kind of important to put a picture on this, in that um, Aereo is putting up little tiny antennas, thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them, in very small, you know, on the side of a building, or the top of a building. And then they stream each antenna to a person, and they say, I am actually can take free TV over the internet using this method. And that theoretically is illegal, or illegal, depending on your point of view. Is it, is it something significant? The, the issue that the Supreme Court seems to be wrestling with is what this, what, how they rule how it could potentially affect other cloud providers. Because the, it's not just that Aereo is streaming this over the Internet. It's that it's acting like a you know, cloud-based DVR and that it's, you can stream it at any time you want. So if the program was recorded last week, you can still download it. Uh, so there's this cloud element to it. Um, the, the other thing, again, is about copyright, that uh, the companies like ABC feel like they're not getting their percentage because Aereo seems to be providing a service that Aereo isn't paying ABC for, even though ABC is paying for it. Well, ultimately, ABC is getting free use of the public airwaves based on decisions made ages ago when when the FCC initially licensed the big uh, networks for having specific bans over the air. And for now, for them to say, oh, well, we're being cheated is kind of ridiculous. And honestly, this was shot down years ago when VCRs first came out. And they said, oh, you know, these people are are, are converting us into a replayable uh, model, and what bothered them the most was that you then had the ability to be able to skip over advertisements, which basically paid their bills. So uh, now what they're saying is that, well, here's an alternative way for you to get this out of the air because it's not easy anymore in the United States. Once since they switched over to completely digital signal, you can get some local uh, local television stations using a digital antenna, but it's not. It's not like it, it, it was in the original days of television, thank goodness. Now, <laughs> you know, now, now we're kind of stuck with the, the Time Warners and the Comcasts providing us hundreds of channels of information, and that's the way that um, these large networks can wet their beak, so to speak, in terms of, of, of charging the cable providers to then provide us with local television. And I think that's the issue because if Aereo gets to – do what it does, then I think ABC and NBC, et cetera, are, are worried that then the cable providers will say, we pretty much do the same thing as Aereo, so why should we pay you? 
Right. And ultimately, I, I, to that I would say, and this, this is, again, not capitalistic at all, but saying that if you're getting free use of, of, of frequencies on the public airwaves, then guess what? That's partly what you have to deal with. Now, what's it like in the UK? Um, now, uh, it's very different here. BBC is paid for by a license, so everybody in the country has to pay for a license to access the public uh, television network. Um, which is sort of solves two or three or four of the channels and the radio stations, and then the other ones uh, and everyone all the other ones have there's only like about half a dozen channels that are public, but they're countrywide. There's only 60 million people in the UK, so let's just put that into perspective. Right. And the same TV stations are right the way across the state. And then there's um, two, um, not cable, but um, there are two cable companies who can deliver streaming TV or cable TV or subscription TV services to your house if you're in the capital cities. So they don't really cover, cover the countryside, only the cities, high density mm. areas. So most people just um, are moving to watching the BBC, for example, which is paid for by the license fee, very popular online. And then there's a couple of cable TV channels which have probably reached their maximum size for the UK. So. So Sky, for example, is what is the main one. It's not going to get any bigger because it's reached mm -hmm. its max saturation point. So I don't watch TV, so I kind of don't care. <laughs> so to me, it's like you know, whatever. If you want to watch, why are we arguing about TV when it's really just about content over the internet? It almost comes down to a DRM issue in a way. So mm. be interesting uh, to see how this plays out. No, not really. Also in uh, <laughs> of minor interest this week, uh, Zebra Technology purchased a $3.4 billion chunk of Motorola, um, which means Google's getting fair value out of its Motorola purchase if it's still selling off $3 billion chunks of it. Cause it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that, Steve. Well, what made that odd was that it was a company, uh, Zebra itself was a company that had a cap market cap of around three point change i can't recall exactly and for them to make a three three point four five billion investment with only 200 million up front seemed to be a pretty large uh, uh bite to to take out of something that large i just don't know if uh, again trying to determine what kind of value that they would get out of it zebra was a company that was deeply involved in um in uh warehouse management and that kind of thing basically product uh, scanners and and technologies for handling warehousing and those kinds of things and for them to purchase a huge chunk of that and finance all of it seemed to be a little bit out of balance for me are they buying a patent portfolio or something? At, uh, one would guess. I mean, undoubtedly, there's a lot of mobility functions. That, and I think part of it, too, is, is these location services that have become the darling of the industry. Everybody seems to be talking about location services and how valuable it will be for, uh, say, for example, a retailer to be able to spot where you are in 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 their store and and make pattern adjustments and make uh, you know and do analytics based on that kind of uh, of data. I don't know if that's exactly what they're looking for. Again, because Zebra is a private company, they haven't had to come out with as much information, um, and that's why it was kind of buried under under underneath all of the other news. Is that it was a Zebra announcement, and when I first read about it, it was like, well, who's Zebra? 
<laughs> and why would they be buying Motorola, you know, or a big chunk of Motorola mobility? And, uh, it, again, this is yet to play out, and we're in that dark space after, you know, an announcement of intent to purchase where not a lot of news gets out. But it just seemed to be a really large uh, bite for a very small company to make, especially when you're leveraging all of it through financing. Maybe Google gave them some finance then. It, I would have to imagine there's something like that. So they didn't disclose who their financiers were, but it was, uh, I mean, again, $3.2 billion. And that's a weird thing about the industry today is that these numbers don't surprise us anymore. I mean, drop a billion on a, on a, on a picture application or $2 billion on this or $3 billion on that. It's almost like we've become numb to the amount of money that's actually flowing through some of these uh purchases. And I don't know, again, this is where if you look at brick and mortar companies that, that, that have been around for a long time and have really great, um, really great balance sheets and have been making profit and have been growing steadily throughout and, and their, their, their stock is valued relatively low. And then you look at these new internet startups or these new, these new flyer companies, and all of a sudden it's a billion here and two billion there, and no one thinks <laughs> twice about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all monopoly money. It's, yeah, exactly. After a certain point, you're just adding zeros. Like they used to say, a billion here, a billion there, and next thing you know, you're talking about serious money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. You know, a lot of these companies that people are, you know, like Instagram and WhatsApp, I mean, you wouldn't invest in those companies. No rational person would say, you know, would you give these guys a million dollars to put this on the ground because you might make 19 billion? You'd laugh at them. <laughs> uh, just think about that discussion that you're going to have. You know, if you invest a million today, we could sell this business for 19 billion. You'd be like, hello, doctor, come and get this person, take them away. You know? it's, it's like, um, I do agree. And that's all cloud. So the cloud enables those kind of irrational business models. So we've got Cloud right. to thank for that, which is brilliant. Uh, just mm -hmm. a final topic, which in the, in, the, uh, in the security comedy slot that I always seem to have every week, uh, Akamai released its fourth quarter state of the internet report, pointing out that DDoS attacks have grown by another 23% this quarter and is up 75% from the fourth quarter of 2012. That's attack traffic. Isn't that awesome? Wow. <laughs> wow. So, uh, you know, and what's... If What's you'd really think that coming back to Comcast and AT&T and Verizon, you'd really think that um, if they really wanted to get more bandwidth out of their networks, they'd do something about this, wouldn't you? Right. <laughs> I, I'm still trying to. I'm still trying to find you know to find the real value to these people to making these DDoS attacks. Is it? Is this a political statement? Is it just you know? Are they just being jerks? What? A bit of both. Um, sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's just jerks. And you've got to remember that it also costs nothing to do these things. Yeah. Uh, effectively, the marginal cost to create a DDoS attack. So you can buy a, um, I believe the going price at the moment is about $250 to buy a 100 gigabit per second DDoS attack for a day. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> so I'm guessing well, it could be, it's been a while since spend... I sort of poked around in that part of the internet. But, you know, you, it doesn't cost a whole lot, right? But why would somebody even spend that much money just to be a jerk? I just can't, I can't figure that out. I think I'm going to approach the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And see if I can <laughs> That's right. We could set up, set up set a futures up market for DDoS. <laughs> well, I think that's where we should fit because my coffee's finished. Andrew, how about yours? I'm ready for another. Ready for another. Yep. So that, 
But thanks very much for joining us today, Steve. Tell people where they can find you. I can be found at currentanalysis.com. Very good. And Andrew, what are you going to be doing this week? Uh, I've got some blogs to do, so please swing by interop, uh, sorry, informationweek.com slash interop and see what I'm up to. And also interop underscore Andrew on the Twitters. And uh, I'm Greg Farrow. I will draw your attention to the fact that network computing, sometime erstwhile where I write occasionally, has just relaunched itself. Um, so maybe another part of the UBM uh, empire. Maybe you could go over there and give it a poke and see what you think. And, of course, I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on my blog at etherealmind.com and on the Twitter is at etherealmind and also around Facebook, Google, and all that sort of thing. You can find more in the show notes at packetpushes.net, and you can also follow the Packet Pushes on Twitter to find out what's happening there. And we'll look forward to finding you when there's enough news to talk about in a week or two. Thanks. <laughs>